Last night we were watching Ted Lasso because why wouldn't we be? And there was a moment when the main character said something and I thought, oh, that is so Ted. But how do I know? Ted's not real. I've never actually met him. I'm also not like a TV critic, so I'm not deliberately reflecting on every nuance and decision he makes. And yet, even as just a casual fan of the show, I've developed a sense of who this guy is, how he acts. I I can anticipate how he'll respond to different situations, all without ever asking myself to paint some character portrait of him. It just happens. We do this all the time. There are scholars in communication and media studies with formal theories of how this stuff plays out. One of the notable ones goes back to a guy named Dolph Zillman. As a kid in Poland during World War II, he didn't have a simple childhood. His home province was being yanked between Polish, German, and Soviet forces. His dad went off to war and died. His schools were supremely underfunded. After the war, he ended up teaching himself most of what he learned as a kid. But eventually he ends up in the United States to study communication and psychology, and by the 70s, he's really interested in humor, of all things. When are we okay with entertainment that pokes fun at people? That gave way to a broader theory of how we engage with entertainment in general, disposition theory. The idea is basically that we don't just passively observe characters in stories. We root for the good guys and relish when the bad guys get their comeuppance. Later, Zillman wrote that viewers of media are, quote, untiring moral monitors. In other words, we're always on the lookout for who's doing good and who's doing wrong. This idea has blossomed into a bunch of interesting ideas about how we connect with and think about characters in movies, books, and TV shows. But for me, whenever I think about these theories of entertainment, I always wonder, is this just how we think about people in our real lives. Like, sure, I watch Finding Nemo and have a clear sense of who Marlin the Clownfish is and why I'm rooting for him. But isn't that just the app my brain uses to understand real people getting co-opted to understand this fish character? Like, is there a difference? I think there is a difference, and it's one that makes me appreciate how much more is at stake when I'm sussing out the kind of person my neighbor is, as opposed to an animated fish. I interact with my neighbor. My neighbor's behavior directly affects me. I'm not passively observing a story I have no part in. I'm personally instigating some of the things my neighbor does (laughs) that give me a sense of who he really is. So how do we do this? How do we learn about other people through the entanglements of our interactions? You're listening to Opinion Science, a show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I'm excited to share my conversation with an old buddy, Lior Hackle. He's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Southern California, and he studies how we learn about other people and how we make decisions about them. For me, this falls well within the walls of opinion science because it seems we're constantly sizing up other people. Do we like them? Do we trust them? Like, what's our take on John? You know? (laughs) His research uses neuroscience, economic games, and computational models to sort out what's going on in our heads as we're getting information about other people. It was great to catch up with him and get his thoughts on all of this, so let's get right into it. Kind of as I read it, a lot of the work that you do, or the way that you frame it in terms of how we learn about others, is that we learn about them through interacting with them. Like I get to know the kind of guy you are by virtue of the fact that, like, I have experience getting to know you. Um, and some people might hear that and go, like, I mean, yeah, right. Like <laughs> that's how we would get to know someone. And so I'm curious: do, do you think that psychology has generally been good about acknowledging that as the mechanism through which we learn about people, or is it kind of actually a new thing to introduce this? Is like, no, actually, we really ought to get back to basics and look at how we really learn about people in the world. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, this is such a great question. I, I think this is something that's been ignored uh, at least. Uh, more than it should have been in the world of social cognition. So 
You know, it sounds intuitive. Uh, a lot of the work, uh, the vast majority of work in social cognition over the last several decades, looking at how we learn about people, has really looked at really passive kinds of learning. So you see on a computer screen that John uh, helped an elderly person across the street, and you form an impression of John. Uh, now, that is we've learned obviously a ton from from that work about how we form impressions and which kinds of impressions we form and how they cohere the perspective that uh, i i take is that there are a number of different systems for learning and memory in the human brain and they contribute in different ways to behavior and i think one of the things that's really different in interaction is that you know, yes, we form impressions, but we're also experiencing things. So if John helps us cross the street directly, there's an affective experience there. Uh, and in particular, there's an experience of reward, right? We have a, a an outcome that feels positive or that feels negative. In theories of learning, this corresponds to instrumental learning, which is a kind of learning from rewards where we actually perform actions and then get some kind of reward feedback. You know, either we, we get a reward or we don't. And then that's going to shape our future uh, actions down the line based on those outcomes. And you know, this is thought to be a somewhat distinct kind of learning from more passive kinds of learning, uh, you know, through observation. It is thought to have some distinct behavioral consequences. So, for example, instrumental learning uh, <clears throat> can give rise to habits where we keep on doing the same thing even when it no longer really <clears throat> fulfills our goal. Uh, and so uh, we started looking at social learning through interaction in order to say, well, all right, the social cognition literature has really been focused on impression formation, but that's been through passive kinds of learning. Meanwhile, in non-social work, there's been a lot of focus on how we learn through actual reward feedback, but that's largely been in non-social settings. So how do these things actually come together? in social interactions. To what extent are we learning from these affective experiences of good and bad outcomes, uh, you know, things that are rewarding or not, versus these kind of abstract impressions that we're forming of people? Does it seem like it's something that's qualitatively different, like this interactive learning versus, oh, I just get more information, right? I get some information by just being a passive observer, and then I get some extra by being being the recipient of some of these actions or being closer up to what's happening? Or is it like, no, like, I'm just in a new mode of learning about you now that I'm involved? Yeah. So based on uh, work on learning and cognitive neuroscience, the, the idea would be that there really is this kind of additional mode of learning that's coming into play. We have, we have some data that is, we have yet to publish, or we've, we've looked at this about differences when people merely observe versus actually interact and get rewards. And we see the, the reward effects when people actually interact more so or, or, or entirely as opposed to when they're um, just observing. That's, that's not published yet, so I don't want to make too much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, we still want to replicate those findings. But at, at the very least, I would say the prediction from, from the learning literature should be that you know, this kind of learning really comes into play when you're interacting. Mm -hmm. Meaning that it's also different, not just from other forms of learning about people, but other kinds of learning in general, right? Like for me to get to know you <laughs> requires something different of me than like me learning physics or whatever. <laughs> that That's right. I, I think, you know, I think what really this gets at is the idea of social action. So Social psychologists have long said that thinking is for doing, right? Um, but I think really studying how we actually learn which social actions to take brings in these other layers. So it, one way I can learn what social action to take is to learn, you know, Andy's a really trustworthy guy. And so I should take the action of, uh, you know, giving him this loan or telling him my secret. And that is one way I can learn what action to take. Another way I can learn what action to take is I can tell you a secret, experience that you keep it, <laughs> and learn, okay, I should do that again in the future based on that rewarding outcome. And both of these things can be happening at once. Uh, one of the things that we've explored is that these things can also diverge, right? So there can be situations where you form a positive impression of someone, even though you didn't have a very rewarding interaction. 
or you could have a really rewarding interaction with them, even though you kind of think they're a jerk. Um, and so these things can also point in different directions at times and, and lead people in, into different paths. Is this sort of a program that's always running? Like, because it could be where you go, I don't have any secrets, so I don't really care. <laughs> I don't need to know this about this person. And so you could imagine that I like, I, I boot up the program of learning about people only when it's really important. As opposed to maybe another perspective, which goes like, well, no, to be a person in the world, like, it just means you're always running this program. Like, that's, that's like the one thing <laughs> you, you we're always doing. I, I, I mean, that's a probably a too big a question to really answer. But like, what's your sense of, of that distinction? I, I mean, I would lean more towards the latter. I, I think that at least for most of our social interactions, and I, I'm happy to say more about this, that the perspective I come from is that one of the things that's really unique about social interaction is just how much knowledge and expertise and expectation we come into it with. And so the vast majority of the time, there's some relevant uh, meaning that we can make out of someone's behavior. Even if I'm not going to need to tell them a secret again, you know, maybe I have a general impression that they're, you know, a, a good person uh, and that might be relevant for me. I can you know, make sense of what's happening through social knowledge that I have. And so, yeah, I, I kind of lean towards the latter. I think both of these things are just always happening as we engage in interaction. Um, I think if you were in a social scenario that is completely novel to you and you had no way to sort of make sense of it, uh, given your pre-existing knowledge, and you would never be in that situation again in the future, and so you'd have to work really hard to think about you know, what this means. Yeah, maybe then you're not going to do that. <laughs> but I think most of the time it, it, we do. It, it reminds me a little bit of the, I, I hate the name that we give this, but spontaneous trait inference, if we're to use the, the, the fussy label for it. But their whole premise is like, just we just, we see people do things and we cannot help but interpret that action as saying something about them. Uh, and they do all these things to try and stack the deck against it. And they go, no, you still come away with an impression of this person just by virtue of having seen it. And that, that seems like that would only ramp up if it's I'm involved in this, right? Like this is happening to me or I am like navigating a relationship. I'm going to, I mean, I speak for myself, like I can read into a lot of things <laughs> that people do and say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's, that's exactly how I think about it. And I, I, I think the same thing is true about the reward side of things where just in the background, we're, you know, we're constantly experiencing things that feel good or bad. And, you know, we're more complicated than that. Humans are not going to just thoughtlessly repeat actions because something good happened or avoid actions thoughtlessly because something bad happened, right? Uh, that's, it's kind of a simplistic form of learning. But I, I think it's also a mistake to think, therefore, that it has no influence, right? There still is this contribution, I think, of this more affectively driven form of learning that, it, you know, it influences us at least to some degree uh, when we do experience these good or bad things happen. Hmm. It's reminding me, just like a week or so ago, I came across this paper, which I haven't actually read. So all of what I'm saying is tentative. But my impression is that the finding is something like with people who have severe memory impairment and like can't actually remember episodic events. If you treat this person poorly, later on they're going to go, I don't think I've ever met you, but I don't like you. <laughs> Which to me highlights that like this program is churning, right? Even when we can't reflect and go like, I don't know why I don't trust you. At the moment, my brain was like, let's hang on to this because <laughs> this person may not treat you well in the future. A and similarly, I mean, this is at the edge of my – I'm really speaking at the edge of what I really know how to say. <laughs> but in the neuroscience area, I have heard and read <laughs> that like the processes in the default mode network, this kind of like set of brain areas that seem to just kind of like – be persistently doing stuff are also the same kinds of uh, brain areas that are involved in when we try and figure out what other people's deal is. Is that is that a, a finding that's stayed consistently true, or have I butchered it in some way? No, no, that that's right. So this is uh, there's work from uh, Megan Meyer, Bob Spunt, and Matt Lieberman showing that um, when people show more activation in these regions at rest. 
they are then faster to respond mm. if you ask them to make some kind of social attribution, uh, you know, about other people or themselves. And so that this is the, the idea they've put forth is that, you know, it, it, the default mode network that's active, uh, even when we're not doing a particular task might be getting us ready mm. to engage in social inference. Okay, so so let's talk about some of what you've actually done. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you sort of uh, raised this distinction between sort of general, affective, rewardy kinds of reactions we have to other people, and maybe more nuanced impressions that we form. So just to make sure that we're on the everyone's on the same page, like what exactly is the difference there, and and why is that a meaningful difference? Well, I, I can answer that in part by talking about how we've studied it. So. Uh, a lot of how we've studied this has been through economic games where you are playing some kind of social game with another person and you have to learn who you want to interact with over time. So, so trying to model the process of finding out which people in the world do I want to form some kind of tie with or partner with. What we've done, though, is manipulate uh, two things. So first of all, uh, what proportion of money available does someone share with you in this game? So you are going to be a recipient and someone else has made a decision to share some amount of money with you. And so uh, the first question is, what proportion are they going to share with you, right? And this is going to get at their uh, more abstract generosity or, or fairness, uh, a, a more social kind of impression. But different people can have different uh, amounts of resources available. So imagine that one person starts with a dollar and they share half of what they have. So you'll walk away with 50 cents. Imagine another person starts with $2 and they share half of what they have. You walk away with a, a dollar. So they've been equally proportionally generous, right? They are showing you know, identical willingness to fairly split their resources, but you walk away with a really different material reward. And so we have people play games like this where they choose a partner and then find out both the amount they're getting from the partner and the proportion they're getting. And then what we can do is ask, all right, who do you go back to over time? Are you gravitating back towards the partners who shared a large amount with you and who were rewarding? Or are you gravitating back towards the partners who were being proportionally generous, this kind of more abstract uh, quality where regardless of the amount of money at stake, they're, they're splitting it fairly. What we find is that the answer is both. Uh, in the studies we've run, typically people primarily uh, go back to the generous partners and you have this smaller but but quite robust effect of reward. So uh, people generally are going back to the generous partners. Um, one caveat on this is that it really depends on the context. So if you run a study where like, there's some people who have $1,000 and other people who have $1. Yeah, people are going to choose the ones who have $1,000, even if they're equally generous. Uh, another possible caveat here is culture, uh, which I can say more about, but uh, one of my collaborators has been exploring whether, whether culture also shapes this um, distinction. That said, uh, to come back to your question, so that, that's one way of thinking about it. Reward is this concrete outcome, right? Like how much money are you walking away with from this interaction and how good or bad do you feel about that? Whereas uh, an inference about someone's generosity, again, it's it's this more abstract inference about how fairly they'll split resources regardless of what's at stake. And it leads you to expect they'll probably do the same thing again in the future. Um, you know, as for the question about then, well, so why does this matter? We've looked at a couple different implications of the way people learn here. One implication we've looked at, for example, has been for uh, economic inequality. So typically, people reciprocate with others who are generous, right? So if somebody does something kind for you, you become more likely to do something kind for them. And this is typically thought of in terms of those impressions of generosity and fairness. But if you also have this contribution of reward learning, where, you know, when we have good outcomes in an interaction with somebody, we feel good, we feel more positively towards them, we're more driven to kind of interact with them. Well, we might end up reciprocating more with individuals who start out wealthier and therefore can provide us with more material resources, even with equivalent levels of generosity. And, and this is something that we found 
even when they're so if, if you you know experience a scenario that i've talked about before one person has a dollar and they uh, give you 50 cents another person has two dollars and they give you a dollar later on if we give people the opportunity uh to now reciprocate and say hey you know the last thing that's going to happen in this study is you we're going to switch the roles now you can send money back to these people uh just out of the goodness of your heart you won't interact with them again there's no strategic concerns just who do you want to send more money to uh, now? It turns out that there is this uh, effective reward where people are hmm. likely to send more money back to the person who started out richer, right? Because that person evoked this kind of more positive disposition. Now, I, people also, of course, reciprocate based on generosity, but above and beyond that, you have this effective reward. And so, you know, if this is happening in the background, you can get these kinds of effects that can uh, propagate inequality, for example. Hmm. So, so just to sort of summarize, you, you you can rig a game like this where I'm learning about another person, so that I get a lot of money from a stingy person, but I get very little money from a generous person, and this sort of poses this potential dilemma. Like, I really like when I have this money, <laughs> and, and person A <laughs> gave me more money, and so I, I should be inclined to like them, but at the same time, I'm capable of understanding. That person A was giving me relatively little money relative to what they had, right? And so they're stingier than person B. And yeah, interesting. So generally, it's true that I would still reward the generous person and sort of get like, hey, like, thanks. Like, I, you're, you're great. <laughs> I feel almost maybe a moral obligation to pay back some to you because you, you went about this game really honestly and virtuously. But I also go, but like, yeah, but also person A gave me a lot. And so I feel indebted to them. And and so still there's like this additional urge to reciprocate the amount that was given. Is that 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 is that yeah. capture what you're saying? <clears throat> that that captures it really well. I you know, I, I think that the reciprocity part, I, I would just add two notes. One is that, yeah, I mean, if you had one person who is generous and one who is stingy, people will give reciprocate more with the generous person. If you have two people who are equally generous, but one gave you more, that's where I think you'll really see these effects of uh, reward. The other thing I would say is that I think that that reward influence, the way I think about it, at least, is as something affective, where we kept on experiencing these positive feelings, and it builds this positive disposition towards this other person. Maybe we even end up thinking that they were more generous than, in fact, they were. And that, that is something we've seen in some studies that people you know, misreport these individuals as having been more generous. And so I think it's, you know, I'm not sure people are explicitly trying to rematch the amount they got. I, I think it's just more, it kind of biases a bit your disposition towards this person to feel positively towards them. Some of this stuff is stuff that you've looked at in the brain too, this reward versus trait inference stuff. So what what is the distinction there? Like, do, what, what, what do we gain by taking that level of analysis to it? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I, I would say there are two things that I think we, we've we gotten from doing that. The first thing is to try to dis, really dissociate learning processes in ways that are hard to do in behavior. So behaviorally, we can say people are learning from these two signals. They learn from the amount they get absolutely, and they learn from the proportion they get are these really qualitatively different kinds of learning or is there just one general learning system that yeah tracks two different pieces of information and two different inputs and so neuroimaging has been helpful to say well actually these things are dissociable, dissociable in the brain and learning signals for each of these have uh, different patterns of brain activation and so it does seem like there's a more meaningful distinction that these are different kinds of learning uh, happening at once the other way that I think uh, neuroimaging has been really useful for this is to serve as this common bridge to other literatures in other areas. So for example, uh, in just a, a vast amount of work on non-social reward learning or reward processing, uh, a region known as ventral striatum is active when people are learning about rewards. So when they get rewards that are better than expected. Uh, and you know, this has been found in tons and tons and tons of studies. Well, in our work in social interactions, when people are learning from rewards, 
we see that ventral stratum is responding to better than expected rewards. Now, that suggests that there really is this potential overlap in process of, of uh, this general reward learning process that's been studied in a lot of other ways. And I, I think that's useful for generating new hypotheses, for being able to say, well, maybe we can take what we know about the reward learning literature from non-social cases and test if that's going to be true in social interactions as well. And so having that bridge that can suggest new ideas as well. And nice also, though, to be able to say that, like, that's not sufficient to completely account for social learning, right? Like, it might feel like, oh, we can just look at all this ventral striatum stuff and be like, oh, this is going to tell us how we learn about people. And your perspective is actually like, yes, <laughs> but <laughs> there's this other process that people seem to really be leaning on that you'd totally miss if you were just thinking about it in those terms. Yes, thank you for saying that uh, for me. Absolutely. I, I only addressed one side of the equation. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I mentioned some of what I see as the, the insight for social cognition about how interactive learning and reward matters. But absolutely, I mean, one of the points we wanted to make for the more general learning literature uh, in cognitive neuroscience was to say, yeah, look, I mean, when people are learning about uh, in this task, generosity learning signals uh, they also activate the, a, a ton of regions that have been associated with impression updating and past work. And so, yeah, reward is really not the only thing or in our study, even the primary thing that's going on. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I wonder. So so the examples that we've been talking about so far are reward in terms of you decide to give me money and me learning about your generosity. That's the trait. Uh, you, but you've looked at this for other kinds of trait learning, too. Right. So pitting reward against other sorts of traits, the one that that I I could name is work that you've done on competence. Maybe you've done others. Um, what do some of those look like where you, again, are sort of rigging the rules of the game so as to pit these two potential ways of learning about people against each other? Yeah, we see pretty consistent results. So we've done this with competence where you're learning uh, how much workers earned for you in a trivia game, both through the proportion they earned, but also the amount that you got, which is just dependent on like the, the number of points that were at stake for them in the game. Uh, more recently, we've been doing work on how people learn from social acceptance and rejection. The idea being that somebody could really want to interact with you and they could think very highly of you, but for one reason or another, it, it might not work out, right? Maybe, hmm. you know, maybe they would rank you third out of a hundred to be uh, on their team, but it's a two person team and, and you don't make the cut, right? Um, or maybe they would rank you 99th out of 100, but it's a 100-person team, and so you do make the cut. So uh, across these different, uh, really different scenarios, we pretty consistently see that both of these kinds of learning take place. People learn from the social inference. You know, this person is competent, and they will be in the future, or this person likes me, and they will try to include me in the future. But people also learn from the rewarding outcome. Hey, this person earned a lot of points for me in the game, or hey, at the end of the day, I, I got accepted by this person. I got to kind of be, uh, you know, play this game with them. It's kind of an optimistic view of the world, actually, as I think about it. Like, isn't it nice that we can not really gain much from a person, but still learn about their strong qualities? Like, I can still come to learn that you have a lot of positive qualities, even when I personally stood to gain not very much. <laughs> uh and so, you know, from my world of thinking about, like, what overall impression do I have of you? I guess the question is, do people integrate? Like, how, like if, I, if you just ask people, how much do you like this? How good is this person? <laughs> do people compartmentalize the feeling that I got when I interacted with you from the kind of person I figured out that you are? Or do I just sort of, like, mash them together and go, like, well you are generous, but I got not very much from you. Uh, and so I like you, but not as much as if I also got a lot from you and you're generous. Both. Yeah. So people people will mainly be able to separate these. So by, by and large, uh, if you ask people, you know, how much do you like this person or how generous do you think this person was or how competent do you think this person was, the biggest effect you'll see is in fact, how generous were they proportionally? How competent were they in terms of their actual performance? Uh, how did they rank you? 
But you do also see this, you know, smaller, but again, really, really consistent bias where people think that you are a little more generous if you gave them more uh, or or were earned them more. So that's why I say it's both. To some degree, people can keep these separate, but there's there's kind of affective spillover is how I think of it, um, at least to some degree. So, so it's, it seems like maybe our the primary thing we turn to when we gauge how good of a person you are is, are these things that I've learned about you? Like, what kind of person are you? Are you generous? Are you competent? Are you kind? Are you virtuous? And then I disseminate some bonus points uh, or I take some away <laughs> based on the feelings I got when I interacted with you. Does that sort of, is like a, I, you, I mean, I, I hate stage theories of things, but it feels like a two-stage process of like, first, I anchor on how good you are as a person based on what I know to be true of you. And then I sort of nudge that based on the feeling. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how sequential it is, right? As opposed to just you're simultaneously integrating these different sources of information. But I I would agree with the metaphor of it's kind of like getting some extra bonus points on your impression. Uh, yeah, based on how you made someone feel. Okay, so uh, more recently, this stuff has been pushed in another direction. And... I, what I really liked about this new stuff that came out is kind of maybe sort of the themes of my question so far is like, how are we reflecting specifically on what we're learning versus just getting a general impression of who you are? Um, and so, I mean, I think I'm mostly just teeing you up to talk about this project. <laughs> uh, it's sort of, it starts with that question of like, when I'm in these interactions, am I like writing in my journal everything that happens so that I can look back on it later and go, oh, you did these three nice things. You're a good person. Or am I just sort of vaguely getting this intuitive sense that you're a good person? And so what is that distinction and, and how can we play with it? Yeah. Uh, so th in, this is uh, recent work where we, we really wanted to bridge um, – it's two lines of work, one in the field of memory and judgment, and on the other hand, one in social impression formation, where we started thinking that maybe these are talking about the same thing without realizing it uh, to some degree. So, uh, you know, in the domain of memory and judgment, fuzzy trace theory is this theoretical framework that, that we drew on. And the idea of fuzzy trace theory is exactly what you're describing, that when we experience really any event, we simultaneously form these two kinds of memories. First off, there's detailed episodic memories, so you know exactly what happened uh, in an event. But parallel with that, at the same time, we're also forming what's called a gist memory, where we're just extracting, you know, what's the ultimate meaning here? Like, what, what does this mean? Forget all the details. You know, one common example is, you know, I could tell you that there's a 30% chance of rain or a 70% chance of rain, and you could remember those details, or you could just extract from it, okay, there's a low chance or a high chance. And you don't have to remember if I said it was a 70% chance or an 80% chance. That detail isn't super important for guiding your decisions that are to come, what really matters is, you know, is it a low chance or a high chance? Should I bother taking an umbrella or or do I not need to? Um, and, you know, there, there are a couple points about fuzzy trace theory that we thought might be really relevant for thinking about social impressions. So the first was this idea that uh, we form these two kinds of memory in parallel, because what this reminded us of was exactly what you mentioned before, spontaneous trade inferences. So in you know, really classic work on this, um, they had uh, subjects read sentences like, you know, uh, the barista tripped while carrying the drinks. Uh, and then later what they find out is that people formed two kinds of memories in parallel. People did form memories for the details of the sentence and people could to some degree uh, you know, recapitulate the exact words in the sentence. Simultaneously, people encoded in memory the gist of it via a trait word like clumsy. Right, and so people also had a memory for this a trait word like clumsy, and so that looks a lot like what fuzzy trace theory is talking about when it talks about gists. The second thing that we we thought was really interesting is that in the fuzzy trace literature, gists uh, persist for longer 
than verbatim memories. So even after people have, you know, kind of forgotten the details of an event, they might still hold on to that gist, which, you know, again, gets rid of the details, but extracts the ultimate meaning uh, of it in this simpler kind of format. Well, that's true of social impression formation. People can remember hundreds of impressions of whether they like someone or not based on their behavior, even when they've forgotten the behavior they read. So even long after you've forgotten that the barista uh, you know, spilled the drinks, you might still hold on to some impression of how much you, you like them or not. Uh, and then you know, the third thing that we thought was really relevant is that in fuzzy trace theory, uh, there's this idea that when people have more expertise in something, they really rely more on gists. So novices are going to kind of get lost in the weeds and just attend to each individual tree, an expert can look at something and immediately see the forest and, and pull out uh, you know, the, the ultimate meaning here in a much simpler way. And as I kind of started with today, I think humans have just immense social expertise. We have these concepts ready to go, trait concepts like generous and competent, uh, moral concepts like fair and unfair, role concepts like helper or teacher. And so we have this expertise where we can really, really, really do a great job of extracting gist. So, you know, starting with all of these ideas, we thought, well, okay, maybe we can draw further on the fuzzy trace literature to think about how this unfolds. Uh, the other, so there's, there's two other things that I, I, you know, I have to mention just as, as background here. Um, I've talked so far about details versus gist. But fuzzy trace theory really says there's a couple kinds of gist that, you know, push farther and farther in the direction of simplifying our memories. The idea is we, we really are going to just gravitate towards the simplest representation of something we can. So uh, instead of 70% and 30% chance of rain, you know, higher low chance of rain is, is simpler. But you could get to an even simpler representation uh, which is called a categorical gist. And this would be if I told you that there's, you know, a 5% chance one day and a 60% chance another day, you might just encode this as basically no chance and some chance. And that's a categorical distinction. This is even simpler because, I mean, imagine you're looking at the five-day forecast, right? You don't have to keep in memory like, okay, Monday has a higher chance, Tuesday has a slightly lower chance, Wednesday has an intermediate chance, you know, Thursday's the highest. All you have to do is for each day, you kind of know, yeah, Monday, there's some chance, Tuesday, no chance, Wednesday, no chance, right? Um, so it's even simpler. And so there's this, this kind of uh, uh, pull towards the simplest representation that you can get to, uh, from details to kind of relative uh, goodness or badness or relative rankings, and finally to just black and white categories, right? Discrete ways of labeling something. And so the insight of this new work that uh, uh, Peter mendes Sudlecki and I just uh, published is uh, that maybe that's true as well of social impressions, right? If social impressions look like just memories, they persist longer uh, than our memories for details of social interactions. We have a bunch of expertise in social uh, cognition. Well, maybe we also form these two kinds of social memories, either remembering people in terms of relative rankings this person was more generous, this person was less generous. And we can encode people categorically, this person was generous, this person was stingy. And again, maybe we have this pull towards simplicity that when we can, we're going to kind of go to the simplest representation we can get to. If we're able to get to a, a relative representation, we'll do that. If we're able to go even farther and land on a categorical representation, uh, that maybe we'll do that. And uh, yeah, that, that's what we took a look at in the study, as, as well as how this um, impacts our, our decisions that we then make about people. Yeah, and you're able to, like, pit these against each other, right? Like, how, how uh, the metaphor I always use is you rig the rules of the game. Like, I just feel like that's the most intuitive <laughs> yeah. way to talk about how we design studies like this. Um, but, like, what does this game look like? And how is it set up such that we'd be able to tell at the end whether you were f encoding this stuff, strictly speaking, as just like, I'm just regurgitating what you told me, as opposed to having extracted some gist-like idea of who you are as a person? Yeah. So uh, what, what we did was as follows. We told subjects that they're going to be learning about uh, 
other participants who had played a trivia game uh, where they could, you know, win win points worth money. They learned though about two groups in kind of separate uh, blocks or separate stages. One group they learn about, everyone's pretty incompetent. So they get like 25% of the points available on average, except for one moderate target who does a bit better, they get 50%. In the other group they learn about, everyone's pretty competent on average, they get 75% on average, except for one moderate target who gets 50% on average. Now, after they have learned about everyone, we give them a, a decision phase where we say, okay, you're now going to hire people to play trivia questions for you on each round. You can choose which of these people you want to play with. And of course, what we're interested in is what do they do when these two moderate targets who won 50% are pitted against each other? Who will you choose to hire? If you are remembering uh, the exact details of what happened, you would remember that, well, each of these people got 50% on average. They are identical. And there's really no reference, uh, no reason to to prefer um, have a preference for one or the other, right? I should just flip a coin uh, in my head. On the other hand, if you are moving towards the simpler representation of uh, relative gist, now you do something different. One person you learned about was a positive deviation from their group. So they got 50% when everyone else got 25%. So your simpler representation of them would just be they're better, right? Or, or they're relatively more competent than, than those in their group. The other 50% person you learned about was a negative deviation from their group. They were doing worse than the people you learned about uh, with them. And so they would have gotten encoded as, oh, here, here's the bad one. They're worse than the group. And so now you should, when you're asked to choose who you want to hire, you should have this relative preference uh, to choose the person who looked relatively good next to a bad group as opposed to the person who looked relatively good, uh, I'm sorry, relatively bad next to a good group. And that's exactly what we see, right? So when given the scenario in this way, uh, subjects have this really, really robust preference to uh, choose the person who looked relatively good over the one who looked relatively bad. Um, now, I, you know, so far that only addresses the, the relative just component, how people kind of relatively stack people against one another. But again, we thought, well, if people can even go further and categorize others in simpler categories, they should do that. So in a couple studies, we now added in the opportunity to do that. So for example, in one study, we told people, you know, all right, look, anyone who gets zero to 40 points, that's pretty poor performance. Anyone who gets, you know, 40 to 60, that's moderate. Anyone who gets 60 or above, that's excellent. And so the idea is that now when subjects are seeing these players, they no longer have to rank them in their heads as this is the relatively good person, this is the relatively bad person. They can just categorize them as, oh, this person's bad. Oh, this person's moderate. Oh, this person's good. If that's the case, at the end, we should now be able to completely eliminate this relative preference. So at the end, there's now no reason to prefer one of the moderate targets over the other because they were both in that middle moderate category. And so you, you can categorize them the same way. And so that's exactly what we see when we now give people the opportunity to move to that simpler representation. Uh, that's what they do. Uh, the, the last thing I'll just uh, mention in describing this is, you know, that's kind of heavy handed, right? Like explicitly telling people, hey, use these categories of like poor, moderate, excellent. Uh, so we also tried this with more naturalistic categories where they're, they're learning about uh, investors who had invested in stocks. Hmm. In one condition, you know, uh, the investors gained small, moderate or large amounts of money. And so, again, you have to kind of track their rankings, who is winning more than than somebody else in the other condition though uh they crossed category boundaries they either lost money broke even or gained the idea is again that lets people kind of move towards the simpler representation instead of tracking oh this person did better than that person you can just label people this person keeps losing money this person keeps gaining money this person keeps breaking even and so, uh, you know, using that scenario as well, we saw the exact same thing when people can only use the relative ranking frame to simplify what's happening. They show this relative preference. 
uh, for someone who is relatively good in their group versus someone who is relatively bad in their group. But when people can assign these categories instead, uh, that that relative preference completely disappears. Hmm. So the main takeaway I'm getting from this is I should just surround myself with less competent people and label, <laughs> just wear a badge that says, trust me, <laughs> put me in your highly competent group. Uh, yeah. So it, it also, one of the, the connections that came to mind was there's this like inspirational poster saying that's like, people don't remember what you do they remember how you made them feel something like that it sort of strikes me as this but with like an important caveat based on the first round of things we were talking about which is like on the one hand we go yeah i'm not really paying that close attention to exactly what you're doing like i am but when it comes to the choices i end up making or what i end up remembering later i just kind of remember this vague sense that like oh you were one of the good ones <laughs> uh but it's also a little bit different than purely how you made me feel, because as you were talking about in the beginning, that's only part of the equation, right? So you can make me feel a certain way, but I'm still on guard for like who you are as a person. Um, so I'm I'm paying attention to like the broader context, not just oh you made me feel nice inside, but I'm also sussing out like what were the options you had in front of you, <laughs> uh, and who who is the person that you seem to be in an enduring sort of way, and that's the trait level, which also is gisty. Um, but I, I just think we need to make our own inspirational poster that just has a slight <laughs> revision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Just surround yourself with people who make you look good uh -huh. uh, relative to them. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so why do you do this? I, I you know. You could study anything, and it's clear that, like, it's very cool stuff. But I, I wonder, like, is there a, like, what is the thing about this that keeps these questions seeming interesting to you? I, I think there's two things. One, I, I've just really always been interested in integrating uh, cognitive work and social work, uh, kind of trying to integrate different domains. Um, and I, I think trying to bring together literatures on memory and impression formation or reward learning and interaction uh you know to me i think there's something nice about trying to bring these together to say like how can we get uh these kind of you know integrative insights that that put together uh things we know from different domains um into some broader picture uh th that's sort of scientifically why it excites me I think, you know, the, the more practical answer, right, is if we want to understand decision making, right, which I think we do. I think the way that people make social decisions, it's really important. We want to know when somebody hires someone, right, like what what is going into that decision or when thinking about social connection and loneliness, when somebody decides to approach someone else versus just withdraw and think, no, they're not going to like me. Like what is going into those decisions? What computations go into that? And uh, you know what things should we be on guard against, or what things might we want to encourage or promote, right? And so, uh, I think if we really want to think about decision making in interactions, we really need to understand learning and memory and interactions, because you know ultimately our decisions are going to come from some kind of memories that that we formed during learning, whether they're you know instrumental reward episodic details of what happened or or some really abstract just hmm. do you think this perspective applies just as well to how we think about ourselves so it sort of strikes me that you know something like my self-esteem is a little more rewardy something like my self-concept is a little more tradey i'm paying attention to how i act in the world but i may not remember everything that i've done but i still get this sense that there's like a me in here and it it is this kind of person do you think the same thing applies if we just turn the lens on ourselves or is that a different process? I, I do. Uh, and I, I will say uh, a PhD student in my lab, uh, Jean Luo, is, is working uh, in part on this question. So stay tuned. Uh, but, you know, there's this work uh, from John Kilstrom, Stan Klein, uh, and then Jenny Beer as well uh, from, I guess, the 1990s and early 2000s that really made the argument that our knowledge of our own traits is distinct from our memories of specific episodes. Mm -hmm. So you can have somebody who has uh, you know, a neuropsychological patient who has some degree of amnesia, and they cannot tell you 
about things that they have done uh, in detail. But they can accurately tell you about traits they have. You know, I'm mm. punctual, I'm caring, and their ratings will correlate with the ratings of people who know them well. Mm. And so, you know, I think that coheres nicely with the idea that there's this distinction between episodic memory and gist memory, uh, and that we might think about ourselves in terms of gists. And uh, in some of the work that, uh, you know, Jean is doing, she's interested as well in this question of reward and, and you know, how that uh, can influence our self-concept as well uh, hmm. through, again, those affective experiences of, you know, doing well or, or not. Hmm. Does any of this change the way you interact with the world? <laughs> Knowing this is how we do things, do you sort of see people differently or present yourself maybe a little more strategically? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a hard question. I, I try not to have it ch change how I think too much about the world because yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, getting getting too caught up in in thinking about this, you know, sometimes you don't want to be analyzing social interaction that that uh, you know carefully and and strategically, uh, you, you know, you want to kind of uh, engage with it as it is. And so I, I I I don't I wouldn't say directly. What I would say though is, you know, I am interested in work that uh, you know, moves towards thinking about. Uh, some of the applications I was mentioning for, you know, like what can we do in, in decision-making or social connection? And you know, once we have some good answers uh, from those kinds of intervention studies, I'll be happy to apply some of that. <laughs> uh -huh. for, for, for me, I wonder, like, as a perennial people pleaser, if some of this is sort of like, you know, that's not the only thing. Like, also, you can also be attentive to what is this saying about me? Um, there's, a, there's the potential that by completely copying to what is going to make someone feel good in the moment. You may actually mm. sacrifice some perceptions of competence. You might sacrifice some other kinds of things that might be down the line, like useful things for people to think of you. Uh, and obviously you want to balance it. I'm not saying like, oh, don't try to make people feel nice. That's irrelevant because it's not irrelevant, uh, but it's not the the only part of the story, which which I find is is... It, not not the model that I maybe would have intuitively come to. You, you know, that's a great point. And uh, I, I kind of wish I had said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And just to add it, you know, not that it's uh, how you make people feel isn't the only part of the story. It, you know, in many situations, it's not even the main part of the story. It's sort of this smaller side part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I don't know that that's the most inspirational way to, to load, <laughs> to, to end things, but but that's how we're doing it. So uh, just want to say thanks for taking the time to, to talk about all this stuff. And, and I appreciated learning about it. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Alrighty, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Lior Hackle for taking the time to talk about his work. You can find a link to his website in the show notes to learn more about him and his lab. And as always, links to the original research we talked about are there too. To learn more about me, you can head to opinionsciencepodcast.com and follow the show at OpinionSciPod on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget that the website has links and transcripts for all the past episodes. This outro feels short. <laughs> Do I normally say more things at the end? Oh, review the show online. I usually say that. Uh, but I don't know. I think this is all I have to say. I'm mostly just like basking in the glory of the academic year being over where I have more time to do stuff like this. I'm also in the throes of a bidding war on eBay, which is a thrill I haven't had since like 2004. <laughs> uh, so I'm uh, maybe I'm a little distracted now too. But uh I don't know. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. <laughs>